Welcome to The Power of a Graceful Leader with Alexis Thompson. Join us as we explore ways to access your deep inner wisdom, learn what it looks and feels like so that you can find your own path to integration, flow, and alignment, awakening the graceful leader within you. And now, here's your host, Alexis Thompson. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Power of a Graceful Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Lauren McCann. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of Calopie Advisors and is a mission-driven impact studio and consulting firm for philanthropist companies and nonprofits who want to build, grow, scale, and invest in models that maximize human dignity, transformation, and impact. Prior to launching Calliope, Lauren served as an executive vice president of the Stand Together Foundation, a venture philanthropy organization that helped helps grow and scale innovative models that help break the cycle of poverty. During her tenure at the Stand Together Foundation, they experienced substantial growth from 15 million to over 50 million in annual revenue. Go Lauren. Lauren was also selected for the Friedrich Nauman Foundation study tour for young political professionals in Germany and was nominated by Americans for Tax Reform to attend a fellowship program at the Adam Smith Institute in London. She served as a member of the Leadership Committee for the Young Conservatives for the Freedom to Marry and as advisor for Americans Future Foundation. Lauren currently serves on the board of directors for the National Black Bank Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to closing the racial wealth gap, and the Phoenix, a sober active community, which has helped over 42,000 people grow stronger together, overcome the stigma of addiction, and rise to their full potential. Lauren is a fellow of the inaugural class of the Civil Society Fellowship a partnership of the ADL and the Aspen Institute, and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. And with no further ado, Lauren, thank you for being here with me. I'm really excited about this. Uh, We'll just kind of dive in. You know, we've kind of talked a little bit about grace and definitely about leadership. And I know a little bit about your personal journey, so I'm really eager to hear more and where these, your personal journey interfaces with some of the tenants for a graceful leader. And so could you tell me just a little bit about where in the context of grace that we're talking, how does grace exist in your life currently? Yeah, over the last couple of years in particular, I've been in this deep process of excavation. Like just personally, professionally, it's been like peeling back an onion and trying to really uh, ground myself. Some of that was driven by the birth of my second child. Um, some, you know, obviously many of us have been going through that excavation in the midst of a pandemic, um, in the midst of dramatic change, in the midst of um, what has been called the Great White Awakening. Um, and all of that swirling has led to quite a lot of introspection and uh, resetting. Um, and a year ago, uh, actually, uh, almost exactly a year ago, March 8th, um, Last year, I started my own company and I took a, a leap in the middle of a pandemic, right? I, I actually wrote about it on LinkedIn where, you know, I, I wrote this article, why I quit a great job in the middle of a pandemic to start my own company. And um, it, it really hit me. Um, you know, I, I, kept, I kept making excuses for why I wasn't uh, taking a leap, you know, mm-hmm. that it wasn't the right time that I had little kids, a lot of responsibility. Um, and I realized that, you know, time is of the essence and, and that there is no right time. 
Um, and I needed to invest in myself and bet on myself in a way that I had never done before. And, and actually there was this sermon that my pastor gave about the word time mm. and uh, that in Greek, there's actually two, two words for time. There is chronos, which is sequential time and kairos, which is like the opportune time and mm. something that you uh, can marinate in the opportune moment, kind of like wading into a pool. And I kind of realized I was moving through life and I was on that hamster wheel. I was in the grind. And all of a sudden I woke up and I was 39 years old <laughs> and I wasn't marinating in life and I wasn't being intentional. Um, and so that I, I needed to, to sort of grasp Kairos, like the opportune mm -hmm. time and take that moment. So for me, um, I think over the last couple of years, I've really, I've really realized that graceful leadership in particular is, is something to, to strive for. And it's a, it is a practice and not a destination. It is something that you have to work at. And I had to unwind a lot of uh, behaviors and mechanisms I'd built over the years as I was ascending in my career. And part of this leap was to kind of restart and to set up a organization, a company, a, a strong foundation um, with agency. And, uh, yeah. and so it was kind of like this manifestation of all of the deep work I had been doing. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so March 8th coming up soon here, right, is yeah. International Women's Day. Ah, okay, yeah. I've yeah. Actually, that's right. I have talked about that before. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't even realize. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's funny. I, I started reading your book, um, the power of a graceful leader and resonated so deeply with your story. Um, because I started in sales and business mm -hmm. development and was, um, in roles where relationship, uh, was at the center was, was part of my superpower was relating to people was, um, was being able to build authentic trust and kind of vulnerability in relationships. And as I started growing in my career and into leadership roles, that became a deficiency mm -hmm. um, and a weakness. Um, it was perceived as something that made me less objective or, you know, that I was having relationship with people and seeing them for, for their whole. Uh, so I, I really appreciated some of the terminology that you created that helped me articulate and, you know, some of the things I've observed through, through my career. Um, in this process of understanding what grace means. In yeah. Character. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a definite, um, it's a word with lots and lots of meanings for lots and lots of different um, people and culture. Right. And so defining it was step one, which was a challenge in and of its own. So thank you for that feedback. Um, it's always, I think uh, for me specifically, as I've been finding my voice, but, I guess what most people would call a little later in life, you know, my fifties, it's still scary. And um, so when someone mirrors back to me that they found something inside that story, it, it then reaffirms that it was worth telling the story. Right. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's when I was reading your story uh, it, it brought up a, a moment that I had um, that was kind of a, a spark for my own realization of some of these behaviors that had developed over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I had a senior leader call me out of the blue. Um, she reached out via social media to, um, to just see how I was doing. And, and, and what's interesting about this woman was she was uh, tough as nails. Like she was somebody who, who led through a place of fear and, and created a culture where there was just a lot of pain, um, you know, and, and she was very powerful and very uh, untouchable and in some ways um, doing an incredible job at her work, but creating a culture around her that was very destructive. And um, anyway, she reached out to me and she, in the middle of the conversation out of nowhere, sort of said, you know, in my, in my 20s, Lauren, I wasn't, wasn't like this. I, I used to be joyful. I used to be passionate and excited. And I, um, you know, I, could, I conformed. Uh, I, I worked through men. I worked like men um, to gain power. And, and it was almost as if she was trying to reconcile or, or it's not that she apologized, but she was obviously trying to understand um, and going through a lot of regret. And, mm. uh, and it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, I need to be very aware of how the culture is shaping me as a leader mm. and the consequences of that, because you, you know, it could be too late, right? It could be you yeah. to, to undo it. So when I was reading some of your story, that, that was very, like that memory came up for me because it was, it was almost like the Christmas Carol with the ghost of you know, yeah. past, present and future, where I was getting like a, you know, a message <laughs> from the future about the, uh, the cultural impact that I was experiencing at the time and hadn't really unpacked. Yeah, that's really, really nice reflection through someone else that you're able to have that, the gift of that reflection. And it's, um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I work a lot um, in the bullying space just by the nature of it being kind of the opposite of grace, right? We would, we would say, and how oddly enough that I very often, I won't tolerate, I guess is the word, or that's not even very graceful to say that, I suppose, but I'm drawn to the bully because very often, um, not always, but very often, a bully is a result of a culture, be it family, be it organizational, be it whatever. And they chose a response to the, to the pressure or the bullying that they were most likely receiving that was different than, than we culturally think is okay. And I'm not promoting bullying. Yeah. I have this deeper understanding because of how I'm wired and kind of some of my less than stellar behavior as a young leader. Um, from the very masculine, not meaning man, but meaning energy source and force, right? That was required or at least modeled for me to live into. And so that's that's an interesting distinction because in the book, I was really careful about the title in a lot of ways. And I get asked about the grace part a lot, but what I haven't spoken a lot about is the power part. And there's a distinction in Hawkins' work where he talks about power versus force. And so what I would say is back in the day, and probably still now when I'm under stress, because I have a pretty commanding personality that I will apply force. I'm also a Taurus, right? You know, bull in a China shop. It's part of my DNA a little. And and when I, but I'm now able to catch myself, right? Through the grace of my self-love and my self-compassion, hopefully way earlier than I could before to either bring the force and just realize I don't need it most often, 
or to transmute it into power, which is a very different feeling when you're, uh, when you're with someone who's powerful and they're using it for benevolent means versus someone who is powerful, but they're using it as forceful, manipulative, coercive ways of getting an agenda met. And I have never said that here in a podcast. So thanks for kind of bringing that forward and that distinction. Okay. Yeah, that's, so, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I remember when I read his book a long time ago, I was like, oh, now I get it. You know, people would say, you know, you walk in a room with so much energy and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just walking in the room. I didn't have an, a, I didn't understand what that meant. And no one really ever tried to explain it to me. Right. And like mm-hmm. a lot of my coaching now, I deal with women that are extremely powerful and or forceful. And so we're working on energy, um, you know, responsibility with your energy exchange and there's just not a lot of people helping people with that, you know, cause you, you need to be accountable for it, you know? So, yeah, no, I, I, as it's an Enneagram eight, uh, I, I remember when I first heard it, I was like, I'm not an eight. And then I was like, that's so eight of me to say. Um, but I, I'm somebody who deeply cares about justice, right. About what's mm-hmm. right. And so when that thing is triggered, I go into a def- like a mode of I want you to defend my team or defend the injustice of whatever's happening, yeah. which when harnessed is a huge asset mm-hmm. um, and has made me a compelling leader to to do the right thing and push forward the the barrier. Mm-hmm. But I have to like be aware of how I how I approach those types of problems and opportunities in my energy because it can be it can be. Uh, you know, domineering of, of other folks um, or, or people that are quieter personalities when I, when that turns on for me, I used to say it was my Greek side because my, Mm. I'm part Greek and my, my, my parents were, you know, very verbal debaters, you know? So it was a skill that was honed in me to defend myself and to get, to get to be strong in that way. Um, But you look at other eights, it's like Martin Luther King and people who are leaders and, and use that, that power for good. So I really like that. I'll have to get to the source material there with Hawkins and read more about that. Yeah. 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 All right. So tenant number one, right. Is integrating mind, body, and soul. And I think we have, you know, I've said on a couple of different episodes, we have a commercialized experience of what that should, you know, look like. Mm -hmm. And I think we all realize once we move through the should that there's a reality and it's pretty intimate for each person, what that could look like or what serves the person. Um, so can you share with me a little bit about what this might mean for you or how it might look currently for you? Yeah, I, I read in this last couple of years in this period of excavation, a book that I think really grounded me in that understanding, which was, um, seat of the soul, uh, Gary mm. Zukav. And, and so when I think about that, it's, it's really the inner being and the outer being, you know, really closing that gap in terms mm-hmm. of authenticity. And when that was described to me, I realized, yeah, the, the more that we mask, the more that we pile on, the more that we externalize our happiness, the more unhappy we are, you know, and, and ultimately it's checking myself in my own, um, my own triggers, my own behaviors to make sure that I turn inward versus outward for validation mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and feel comfortable in my own skin. And, I think one of the ways that's manifested for me personally and professionally is 
I'm somebody who is sober. I'm in, in recovery. Um, and you know, three and a half years ago before I became sober, I'm not sure people in my inner circle, only a few would have, would have thought it was a problem because I was a work hard, play hard person. I was ascending up the, the ladder. I was in bands. I was, you know, doing lots of extracurricular activities. I was accomplished quote unquote, and doing well on paper. Mm. Um, but was feeling very empty and was using alcohol as a way to combat stress. And, um, for me, uh, when I became sober, I decided as a leader to be open about it. And part of that was I needed to destigmatize, uh, I needed to destigmatize what recovery looks like, what a leader in recovery looks like and enable people through my story to, to recognize and see that addiction is non-discriminatory and it can impact people from all walks of life. And I saw a lot of courageous people around me that were telling their story. And my story isn't like everybody's story. Every, everybody's story is different, but that's the point. Um, and so I felt compelled to, to publicly state that I was sober during recovery month uh, one year. And, and now I'm on boards. I'm, I'm on a board for a group called the Phoenix. So I'm very public about it. But you know, there's a lot of people that kind of look sideways, like, hmm, you know, as a leader, mm-hmm. that's showing something about yourself that's very personal and that might be seen as a deficiency. And the way that I I see it is like we all have things we're working through. And if we don't kind of come out of of and come into the light, uh, we're just burying what what lots of people are dealing with instead of supporting one another. So it's it's been interesting. The more public I am, the more people reach out to me who are sober curious, the more leaders that admit sometimes publicly, sometimes quietly, that they too are in recovery. Um, and, and I feel like it, if I can help one other person be, be yeah. comfortable talking about it, then I'm doing the right thing. But that was, it's interesting. It wasn't, uh, when I first posted about it, I did it as almost an accountability mechanism for myself yep. to hold myself accountable to this life that I was living because the more people knew, the more I could could be in in community with them, honestly, but I wasn't thinking about all the consequences of oh now my board members know or now my donors know, <laughs> and and uh, if anything I've never had an, a negative if if anything it's made people closer to me, mm. um, but I wasn't making a conscious choice about the professional side of that right. at, the, at the time, um, so that's that's to me just like living living authentically and and warts and all and living truly to my experience and bringing that forward as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a, um, a really big, when we think about integration and that's a, that almost, I would think that hits all of them, right? Your body for sure went through an experience. Your mind had to get on board to even make the decision um, to do that. And then I think probably, you know, soul probably led you down the path to make that decision at some point in your life. And, yeah, that's a pretty integrated experience. And, and no one's ever used that experience. It's a beautiful um, way to reframe a stigmatism into a holistic healing. And I mean, that's what it is. I mean, I think addiction at large, and you know, I don't know that it matters what your the addiction is. It's just the thing you use to cope, right? And in the beginning, it's usually innocent and probably unconscious. And then once, once you become conscious of something though, it's really hard. 
especially if you're a, you're someone who has justice and balance and doing the right thing is a way of being to ignore that shadow. So that's really cool. Yeah, it was, I mean, when you think about it, especially alcohol, all, all, again, everybody might have addictions to different things, but when we think about alcohol and the acceptance in our society, uh, we use it to dissociate. We use it to disconnect from our emotions. And so when I think about authenticity and Mm. being vulnerable, like part of that is getting through the hard stuff Mm -hmm. uh, with and knowing and and sort of betting on yourself in that process and not needing substance to help you smooth the edges. Like I want to to feel the edges because that's living, right? It's it. And in some ways getting through that pain makes us us stronger Mm -hmm. and alcohol was a buffer, you know, it was a, a a way to, to numb, to, to not have to deal, to avoid, to bury. So when I, when I think about the impact that has on our mental health and the ramifications of a depressant in people's bodies, to getting through those things, it's a pretty big cultural issue. And not everyone has substance use disorder where they, they have the same types of needs for, for, from an addiction standpoint, but our our culture really glorifies this like dissociation and we do. avoidance. Um, I don't know, you know, um, in transparency, I can think of many times and actually quite recently where I'll be like, oh, it's five o'clock somewhere, you know, and I, yeah. you say that jokingly, like we used to say that the office is a joke and I'm not even in, I'm in my home office. No one's actually probably hearing me and I'm saying that. So I'm, I'm now in an interpersonal reflection going, oh girl, you got to do some, you got to do some checking in on this. <laughs> So that's really yeah, interesting. I, yeah. And I, I think there's varying degrees in, in sure. like gray, right? Of like healthy yeah. relationships with alcohol. And I, I think that's part of, you know, my, my story too. Like I wasn't somebody with a flask that was waking up and drink. It was, it was more like overindulgence when I had alcohol, which mm-hmm. looks a lot like people who party hard, right? And, yeah. In our culture. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think it's a matter of understanding like what is the why behind what, when you grab a drink, right? What is the why and examining if there's patterns that become unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been really hard during a pandemic, right? You've, you've seen yeah. like alcohol sales grow quite a bit. Um, kids are at home, parents are stressed, the marriages yeah. are, are, are strained. Like there's a lot of reasons why people might look for an easier way out of having to deal with that stuff, but it just builds up, you know, over time. Yeah. Um, so part of that living you know, authentically for me was walking through the hard days and the good days and, and getting through them. Um, and, and again, betting on myself. Um, and it, it was a body transformation too. Like I immediately lost, like I dropped weight. I dropped cause of, cause of all the things you're holding in, both yeah. emotionally and physically, um, when you're using alcohol like that. Yeah. So tell me, um, this would be a practical thing for us to hear. So when you bet on yourself like this, um, what did you need to replace? And I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm struggling with a better word. But mm-hmm. when you're feeling the things that would trigger the I want to have a drink scenario or to excess, now when you those feelings aren't gone away, those triggers didn't leave you. Yeah, so now right. what is in place of that for you? Yeah, part of it was getting into a, a fitness routine and mm-hmm. and using physical fitness as a mechanism to release, right? And um, from a mental health perspective and a physical perspective. Um, 
part of it was also realizing, you know, when you're in a social situation sober, um, you can have joy and it can, mm. it can be joyful and you don't need, you don't need alcohol. Um, and so I, I'm one of those people who can be at places where alcohol, you know, is, mm -hmm. and I want to stay in the social engagement as mm -hmm. long as I can. And it's almost like a reinforcing thing for me because I realize I wake up the next day, feel awesome. I could still go for a run, but I still had all the fun with my friends. I still had yeah. the fun with my peers. Um, so it, it, it's, it's almost like a bit of a superpower. You can remember the whole night. <laughs> you know what you said. You have no regrets. You get to wake up early and feel good. Um, That's amazing. And so I, I think it's, it's trying to find like happiness and joy yeah. Uh, and conjuring that without needing anything to be the, the, the trigger. But but running for me was a big one, um, trying to eat healthier um, and giving myself like time of self-reflection mm -hmm. space. Um, not great at meditating regularly, but I try, you know, I try mm -hmm. to do readings. I have a book, um, One Foot in Front of the Other, which is an affirmation book mm -hmm. for people in recovery. And I try to read that in the morning is just like a set my yeah. day. Um, so getting into habits like that, that's just our mindset habits. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So the, another tenant here as we're exploring this is called the evolve, uh, evolving tenant and it's alignment with self and soul. So this one here, the big question is, and um, I'm excited to hear your response, but do you, are you, do you feel clear about what your whole reason or purposes for existence this time around the sun? Such a big question. <laughs> it's a very big question. Purpose of life. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. maybe this is a, a, a micro way of answering that. Um, so every year, you know, for New Year's Eve, I, my birthday's in December. So I'm, I'm always thinking about next year around New Year's anyway. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not going to do a New Year's resolution this year because usually mm -hmm. for me, it's around um, an achievement or a milestone or a grounding goal for, for me. And I realized those are all about like activities and milestones. And I have those. I have those goals. But I wanted it to be about how I show up versus mm. like the what I do. And so this year I chose a word as like a as a mantra or something to kind of snap me into focus, which is wonder. And mm. the reason I chose wonder was, you know, I have two little kids. I have a four-year-old and a almost eight-year-old. And they have, you know, this childlike sense of wonder. And we go on adventures and everything's new. And you kind of approach life with openness and flexibility. And and I, I always say they're my little teachers because they really are. They just like mm -hmm. snap me out of my we got to go. Let's go. We, you know, we have to move to the next thing to like play in the mud, you know, and just it's OK. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to choose wonder because I want to approach work and people with curiosity and openness. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's um, it's allowing me to be like open to the universe a little bit mm -hmm. and not feel like I need to have a plan or be attached to a milestone or an objective. Um, you know, I just launched my business, as I said, I'm in, you know, about to hit my year anniversary. And so I've have a lot of thinking I've been doing about my purpose as it relates to the dignity of people and the impact of my work. But 
this idea of wonder has been more about a, a way of being that mm -hmm. helps me to kind of get out of my head um, yeah. in terms of my like rational mind and just be present a bit more. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes we can get at this question and specifically when you're very purposeful about starting a new business, whether it was conscious or not, this is usually an underlying driver. So tell us a little bit about what it is you do in your business. Yeah, so my, my business is called Calliope, and it was named after the Greek muse. Um, and the reason I chose that was we wanted to inspire innovation for, for leaders to, mm -hmm. that are interested in driving social impact. Um, so we work with CEOs of nonprofits, corporate leaders, philanthropists to build, grow, and scale models that are grounded in human dignity. And um, that is important to me because, um, you know, ultimately I'd been working in poverty for, for quite some time before this mm -hmm. and had observed that we often have like a deficiency mindset about people in poverty um, or even people in recovery, right? We look at the, the mm -hmm. negative and not, we don't look at them through their, their strengths and through their resilience. Um, and so all of the work we do, all the models, all of the organizations we support are grounded in this belief in people and models that honor, empower, and give those people agency in their own, um, in their own transformation. Um, so it's, it's been really incredible work. Part of the why, um, I made the leap was I was feeling like there was a lack of innovation in the social sector a lack of courageous leadership and, um, you know, so many challenging problems in our society, but a lot of talk and a lot of kind of optimizing on what's there, but a lack of willingness to take risks and mm -hmm. to invest in new ideas. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to invest my time, my energy, my creative thinking in bold, scalable, innovative solutions. I realized I was a builder, you know, I, I um, have always been an entrepreneur, you know, I was somebody in a company that would build the new thing, uh, build the new program, launch the new organization. And, um, and I once it got to a big, uh, the size and scale where there was lots of people and the budget was three times, four times as much, I was less happy, like I love being in that build mode. Mm -hmm. So our firm, we're embedded leaders that can essentially be an outsourced leadership team when you're in that build mode and you're looking for innovative, creative, transformative um, leaders to help you. So we've operated as interim executive directors, interim chief strategy officers, when people are at blank page thinking stage and are looking mm -hmm. for ways to operationalize that. Um, and we're working on things like combating extremism and polarization in our country, projects around racial justice, projects around family um, stability and economic opportunity for um, you know black and brown communities so we we have some really fascinating amazing clients and I'm super proud of the work we've done in a short time in a, in a year yeah. and the opportunities in front of us um, so my why and like the how I do what I do is is really grounded on transformation and impact mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's with this view about individuals and giving them agency and walking alongside of them and empowering them in the process. Yeah. yeah. I would say you're kind of leveling the field, creating some justice, aren't you, along the way? Yeah. And that's definitely yeah. something that's very important to me. I, in my last job, I was running um, 
I was the executive vice president of a, a large organization focused on poverty in America. And I had never been into a prison um, before mm. that work. And my very first <clears throat> site visit into a prison, I was at the airport just sobbing. Uh, mm. And I was with some, <laughs> some C-suite executives. It was a very vulnerable, touching moment. But, um, you know, when you meet people who are incarcerated and recognize the barriers um, in their lives and how they got there, um, if you have no proximity, you don't realize how, how li alike you are and how mm -hmm. situations like where you were born and your zip code and where, you know, the luxuries you had access to as a child and or didn't really predetermine um, opportunity sets that put you in situations of desperation. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so once I got proximate, I, I I had to be involved in work that helped to give people a second chance, give them opportunities to flourish. Um, because when you're in a situation like they're in, you might have made the same bad choice, you know. And um, so that that work really opened me up to the injustice in the system and the people that we don't often see that are stuck in cycles of incarceration. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't know we shared this in common. So I um, did a fair amount of work in the prison system in, in Texas uh, and specifically with a female incarcerated, um, um, amazing human beings, powerful people. Uh, um, and it was intimate conversations and it was all strengths-based work. Uh, and to help create a language for them to understand the wiring their, it's their brilliance just turned on in an environment that we don't value. I mean, just let's be honest, right? That's right. I, I mean, if if you're on the street and and you own a, a block for your business, that's a skill set, <laughs> you know. Yep. And and you're operating inside that skill set at a pretty high level, you mm -hmm. know, not in a framework in our community that we value or think is appropriate. Granted, fine. But nonetheless, the skill set's there and the strength is being utilized. And so if you, can, yeah. if you can figure out how to pick that up and put it in a place where it may be they, th this individual would thrive inside of what we socially feel is more acceptable than what they were doing, it most often will happen. And so I, you, you meant, I haven't thought about being in the prison in a long time. And I, I remember the first time that I went in and, you know, the barbed wire on the fence and they lock the door behind you and then they lock the next door behind you. And, and it's very sobering. Oh, um, yeah. And, and then I, I had the experience when I went in there that I didn't expect. And people were laughing and having a good time and being in community. Yep. And I was like, okay, I, I have to take everything I think I know and throw it out the window because I know nothing. And it, it too was a extremely sobering moment. And I still have an affinity to support and do work in those environments. So that's cool. Yeah, I, I um, so similarly, I just was shocked at the level of deep relationship and community yeah. and support that um, is formed when you're in those types of situations. I, one of the most impactful site visits I ever went to was a coding in prison program in St. Mm -hmm. Quentin in California. And so you have individuals in prison who are coding or platforms and websites and creating these inc incredible apps and mm -hmm. um, you know high high touch high functioning interactive websites and the brilliance like on display and mm -hmm. the grit and determination and 
and also the the redemption aspect of the ability yeah. to just be able to apply your skills in a different way and be given given the tools to do that and then the opportunity when you get out when you can make 60k in silicon valley as a starting point i mean that helps break those cycles of incarceration when they're given that type yeah. of opportunity uh, but somebody also would uh, another organization would talk about like transforming their hustle, right? So mm -hmm. to your point, like yeah, yeah, they have those innate skills. That's just not the industry on the block, right? Yeah, and it's giving them the the tools to to recognize those innate skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty powerful. I, don't, I haven't met very many other women in this space that have done work in there. So it's again another nice touch point for both of us for sure. Okay, so let's talk about transparency. We talked about authenticity a little bit um, earlier. And so when we think about transparency in this context, it's about transparency to self, tell the truth, right? Which can be an authentic experience, hopefully. And then, and then equally with others. So I think you've given us a really brilliant example around your sobriety and that journey. Um, let's like peel that back a little bit and talk about the roles that we play in the world because we all, we just, I think sometimes for me, at least, I just kept accepting them. I didn't ever rarely question them um, or try to um, define them outside of what was the role that was given to me. And I just went and slid that mask on and slid the next mask on. And I looked probably 50 feet away from me and went, okay, I'm now mother, right? I have a mother. So I have one example and I look around, there's six other mothers. So I guess it needs to look like this. Um, so can you share a little bit about how the roles that you've played in your life have impacted you? And if along there, Grace has had any intersection points? I think the best example is just this fallacy of um, being able to do it all as a, yeah. as a working mom. Yeah. And, uh, and I appreciate the intent behind, you know, leaning in and, and that like mental model. Um, mm -hmm because women aren't given the same level of opportunities um, in, in the corporate environment. And, and yet I sometimes felt like I was selling a false promise to some of my younger teammates mm -hmm. or colleagues or people who worked for me, who saw me as a, a leader that was on the main stage speaking at the event, who had kids and had it all together. And I, I started to feel like if I don't explain that this isn't, you don't find equilibrium. There's no perfect balance. It is a work of art in that every day is different and every day there's a compromise and you have to understand your boundaries and mm -hmm. create strong levels of communication with your spouse. Yeah. Um, but that it is, um, it is work and it is hard uh, to do both things. Um, and especially for a type A person who wants to get the gold star all the time, um, you know, you have to shut off the computer. You you can't perform at a certain level when the kid's sick, you know, and mm -hmm. or you have trade-offs on your time going into kindergarten to go for the presentation or, or the meeting. Um, and so I felt like I started to try to model the reality a bit more versus the fallacy mm -hmm. to, to my, my teammates in that I set boundaries. Like right now, um, I don't take meetings before 10 a.m. because I walk my daughter to school. I, I realized that if I had meetings that started at nine o'clock, 
that means I'm rushing her little feet out the door. That means I'm stressed and she's stressed. Then I bring all of that energy to, to my day and it yeah. starts my whole day off in this sort of manic hustle instead of focused intention, trying to set her up for her day, making sure that we can account for the fact that the dog's going to pee on the floor and we're going to miss the lunchbox and all the things that are going to happen in the morning and, and just give myself more mm-hmm. space, which mm-hmm. is hard because there's certain clients that are going to be like, well, why can't you meet at 830? <laughs> um, but I, I had to sort of show people that like, that's, that's acceptable. That's how I show up as a mom and how I show up as a, as a leader. Um, and again, some days it is more chaotic than others, mm-hmm. but at least I'm trying to set myself up uh, for success by just allowing for that reality to be how I structure my day. Those are small things, but I think for me, um, I felt like I had to keep it all together in, in a way that made me more robotic and less, uh, it wasn't showing, I think, my full self as a mother, as a working mother uh, earlier in my career, because I felt worried about what that would reflect in terms of my commitment to the jobs I was in. And when the employers, based on the fact that we can be very high performers and they should want to keep us, should know that that should be part of the equation if they're going to keep high quality talent and working mothers uh, happy in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's really cool. And like towards the end there, you're sharing, you know, you're worried about the them seeing the commitment to your work. And so often, I mean, now you flip the narrative, you're letting your daughter see the commitment to her, right? So, yeah. so you're not, you, it's not... I, and oftentimes, you know, I felt this, I feel the same way about lean in has a, the intentionality is I think spot on. I do think it misses some of these nuances that are really important. So it creates a little confusion um, about this perfection or this, this constant balance. And it really is a, it goes up and it's an ebb and flow. And, right. um, and I love that you're demonstrating both to your daughter, who is at some point going to be a young woman leading her own life, if not leading your grandchildren or a company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also that ripple effect for your staff, for your clients to understand healthy boundaries. Um, that's pretty cool. That's, I think that transparency is it's transcendent to every single soul that you're touching there. Well, especially, I'm sure, because it has to do with your daughter, that it comes from this deep well of love and people can't not feel that, you know? Well, I don't, I I think in previous jobs that I've been in, um, there was a focus on efficiency and not enough focus on humanity. And, and we are who we are because we bring, if we bring our whole selves into the workplace, that's not Mm -hmm. a negative thing. That's an asset because we have a (laughs) lot of things um, that we benefit from by being good mothers, by being good spouses, by being good friends, by the things that we learn outside of work that also make us a good employee. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I value the ability to put family at the center and not having to compromise on that. And I don't, I, there's limits to how much we can squeeze out of a person yes. and it only makes them a, um, a less uh, happy and a more broken employee if they're mm-hmm. not whole at home. So to me, it's like it, there, we have to be more flexible in our views ar- around what it means to be 
an employer that fully embraces a full person. Yeah, that's very well said. Thank you. That was very gracefully said, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's try to hit another one. Let's go to innovation because this is kind of key to your world and kind of one of your big whys. And so innovating here, um, it talks about diversity and and diversity means so many things to so many people. But in the context of diversity here, it means all diversity. It could, it's not just the human diversity. Um, it could be diversity of other creatures and other energy sources. It could be all types of things. But at the end of the day, the graceful leader acknowledges that there is diversity at, at large and that there's strength because of the diversity. And then you can plug and play how diversity works. But can you tell me how you found, if you believe, if that also aligns for you, and then how does that roll into innovation in the world that you're living in? I love to be in community with people who have wildly different opinions than I do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just learn so much from, from them. And I appreciate the, the challenge on my own assumptions. Um, and I, I think I, I was in Chicago for 10 years and <laughs> had a very diverse group of of friends there, um, lived in this awesome neighborhood where everybody knew like everybody's dog's names and everybody's kids' names. And it was, it was a true manifestation of like cheers, right? <laughs> like, um, I've never been in a place like this before. And, um, you know, I have strongly held beliefs, but I realized like uh, the people in my inner circle were actually quite different than me. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of rare in these day, uh-huh. in this day and age because people get very caught up in their tribes and their echo chambers. I'm a, I'm a musician uh, and I have all these interesting reasons why I can like get into different types of community quickly. Uh-huh. So naturally I'm pulling from lots of different types of energy. Um, one of my best friends in the entire world is, is somebody who's kind of from a political perspective, probably on a pole that's opposite from, from me. And yet she's like the, the godparent of my, <laughs> my children. And we would be at concerts and be like debating and having deep conversation with love at the center. And I feel like we've like lost that art as yeah. a society where we can hold somebody in high regard and love them deeply, but also disagree. Um, it's, it's deteriorating right now. Um, and yeah. it, and it's sad because the more, when, when I think about how that's impacted me, when I think about innovation or I think about social impact work, um, I think it's made me more empathetic and more uh, open to listening and not so entrenched in my own beliefs because I'm challenged frequently by the people around me. Um, I'm also in this program, I'm an Aspen fellow where I have the luxury of getting to be in community with 20 other people that are vastly different. I, I joke that it's like if they did real world social justice edition mm-hmm. <laughs> and casted, um, that's, that's this group. And they are not these stereotypes, but to give you a sense quickly, like we have a police officer, we have a gentleman who was shot and paralyzed by police. We have a Trump appointee. We have a black lives matter, um, you know, activist. We have like, so Wow. In this, in this moment, it is like, how are these people in community together? Yeah. And these are like my go-to if you had a phone a friend. You know? Yeah. <laughs> these are my people. These are like some of my closest friends. They've stayed at my home. They know my children. I call them when I have a question or need. So 
uh, it gives me, I guess, um, a lot of hope because I don't know, frankly, I don't know if I would have made the leap to start my own company. I don't know if I would have had the courage had I not been in a community mm. like that of courageous leaders that were outside of my immediate circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like it's sharpened me and honed my own individual points of view, um, but made me appreciate and and love like all this nuance that that we all have in, in, in us in terms of our point of view. Uh, it's funny, there was a night at the, uh, there's a opening night for this, this seminar. And there was a gentleman who came up to me, who had a di- very different point of view about the world who said like, we'll never like, oh, you're from oh, okay, you did that. And you worked for these people, we will never be friends. By the end of it, we were like, a- absolute closest friends. Uh, he actually got on one knee and proposed for me to be his accountability buddy in this process. So I, um, I think it's a, a matter of to go back to the wonder piece, like yeah. really having wonder and curiosity about people yeah. and not have letting your, your id and your like triggers, mm-hmm. uh, mask what can be like an, a learning moment for you, yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Very, very cool. All right. So one more thing here so we can honor time and everything. Tell me a little bit about, we talked about power and force. And so you kind of made a call to yourself. You're going to go check out more about that. <clears throat> and so the, the, the last tenant, when I was kind of downloading all of these and trying to make them really practical from all the theory, <clears throat> when I put it in here, I got a lot of pushback from people and it's the compassionately powerful tenant. And it, it is literally a way to introduce duality and non-duality, the concept for people, because a lot of women especially would be like, well, I can either be nice, right? Compassionate, or I can be a bitch, powerful, right? And then, and oftentimes that was the mindset. Okay. What's called, am I, am I going in as nice Lexi or am I going in as not nice Lexi air quotes for whatever this perceived agenda or what I had to do or move in the, in the organization. And it took me a long time and a couple of hard hits on the head in my career to understand that it isn't either or, right? It's, I don't have to be, I don't have to put the nice part of myself in my desk and go down the hall and tear someone's butt up. And I also don't have to put the nice person on and not have any boundaries and totally forget that I am powerful, right? And be a doormat. Mm-hmm. So have you ever struggled or have you seen witness struggle where even if it's a subconscious tug of war for that, for yourself or others? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think because the way that power is modeled in that masculine energy way, um, it kind of feeds its own sort of cycles of how people show up and Mm -hmm. in their power. Uh, I'll give an example maybe of a, of a tension and learning I was told often that I had great radical candor and ah. this was a, um, this was a strength the way they were saying it, because I was able to deliver mm-hmm. feedback in a way that was open. And, you know, I think feedback's critically important and yeah. you need to have challenge. It makes us sharper, but the, how you do that is, is important as well, because mm-hmm. it, it matters how it lands. Mm-hmm. And, 
early in a process, I was seen as giving feedback and people assumed good intent. So I was able to be very direct and um, have that radical candor. But what underpins that is trust. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not pouring into your kind of your trust cup with people and, and filling that up, then you start to get an imbalance in your ability to have that kind of openness. Mm -hmm. um, so I, at one point, was neglecting that nurturing of trust. So then people start to assume malintent or people start to, to question where it's coming from, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're doing both things, if you're able to pour into the cup and, and ultimately build trust alongside a posture of, of power or candor, um, we're able to be direct and lead. Um, I, I deeply believe that duality exists and is actually pretty critical. Um, but if you only have force as like your mechanism in terms yeah. of your the power, then you start to be seen as a railroader and somebody who's just pushing to push mm -hmm. and, and that intent is questioned. So I've ebbed and flowed in that, like I, in the sense that I feel like I've manifested that balance well sometimes and then learned when I wasn't nurturing yeah. a foundation enough and started to like lose ground in my ability to be effective. Um, again, as, a, as, a eight, as an 80 gram challenger, that's already innately something I do. So it's, it's a matter of ensuring that I'm like building that foundation, yeah. uh, which will enable me to be more successful long-term. Um, but I, I think women in particular start to conform to um, a place of power to compete, which when, and, and yet we actually have an advantage in that compassion and empathy quotient um, that will make us a very strong leader, but we tend to bury it in the process of going up that ladder. So it's, it's like unearthing that in a way that makes yeah. us even stronger in the end. Yeah. Very, very good example. And, and uh, thank you for sharing it in that kind of a context, because I think it was extremely relatable. So that's great. Um, is there anything that anyone listening to us today, and thank you for listening, if you're with, still with us, um, that if people say, well, why graceful leadership? Is there something you'd want to say to help them understand why bother with this grace thing? Especially now, after a pandemic, as work and the traditions of work are being disrupted, you know, people aren't in the, in the office anymore. People are virtual. Um, people are more open to part-time working situations and recognizing the need for flexibility. I think we have to redefine how we work and what the culture of work looks like. Um, you know, I said before, I was in cultures that felt like we were pushing out widgets and high performers were rewarded, but they would burn out. Yeah. Uh, they would burn out and feel empty, even if they were being rewarded monetarily, mm -hmm. because it lacked humanity and it lacked, um, it lacked a sense of purpose beyond the work. Mm -hmm. And I think people are craving that. I mean, so many companies are talking about how, or like the millennial generation, it's, a, it's challenging to recruit because people want both, you know, people want mm -hmm. purpose and they want fulfilling work. They're demanding it. So like work has to adjust and how we work has to adjust. And, you know, I think, especially when I think about that story of the woman I mentioned that called me, you know, in her, her generation, she was a pioneer in terms mm -hmm. of leading the way for women in the workforce. 
And so she did what she had to do. <laughs> yeah. So learned from it. And now we have an opportunity to reset the terms mm-hmm. and to build a workplace that's really allow, allows us to flourish, not just as yeah. workers, but as humans. And I can't imagine a time where we're going to be this open to that type of disruption in work than coming out of this period mm-hmm. when employers have to compete for talent and have to make the case why people should be part of their community. Yeah. Um, and, and I really have, I mean, in, in reading the first chapters of your book, which I'm going to finish on my long plane ride tomorrow, um, I felt like you articulated it really well in a way that was easy to contextualize and understand, um, you know, graceful leadership and leading through grace, I think will make people feel more whole, more grounded, mm-hmm. and they'll be more enduring employees because, mm-hmm. because they won't have to make that, that choice of work or life in, yeah. the, in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that wrap up. It's beautiful. So um, I, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. It's been a really gentle conversation, but I feel like it's been really deep. Like I can feel it in my solar plexus, some of the, the deep places that we went to. Is there anything you'd want to share with the audience about yourself or where to find you or anything like that? Yeah. If you are um, an innovator who's thinking about a social change model and are trying to help people improve their lives, looking for some strategic thinkers and leaders to come alongside of you, um, calliopeadvisors.com. It's C-A-L-L-I-O-P-E, advisors. And I know it's so funny. People have been like, how do you pronounce that? Because we made it so <laughs> complex. The Greek muse, there's, people say calliope. You're, you can say it however you want. Uh, we're honoring the Greek, uh, the Greek muse, but um, we would love to be working with inspired people who are doing big things to change our world. Um, and especially models that are combating injustice or bridging divides, which is so critical right now. Um, and there's really exciting things happening in the sector, and uh, we're thrilled to be a part of so many incredible projects. Um, but it's been a joy just getting to know you and talking with you today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, me too. I look forward to many more, but I think we'll probably be many more conversations. Awesome. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to The Power of a Graceful Leader. Please join your host, Alexis Thompson, for another enlightening edition of the program soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.